0: Welcome to Moving the Needle on Wicked Problems. And if ever there was a wicked problem, it is climate change. Flooding, droughts, extreme weather events are becoming far more normal uh, as we experience the impacts of climate change. It impacts our cities, our environment, and comes at a human cost for too many. It has also created a significant debate but how we deal with climate change to transition away from traditional reliance on energy resources like oil and gas. And that in turn has triggered another debate, which is how do we look after the people who are traditionally employed in traditional resources like oil and gas? For all of these, we have a terrific panel ahead of you.
1: Absolutely, Senator. Climate change is a tricky political issue here in Canada. We see significant parts of the country even questioning whether climate change action is necessary. It's actually even sparked a national unity debate in some of the provinces. So you're right. The big question is, how do we tackle climate change, but also bridge this political divide? So to delve into
0: this conversation, we talked to climate change change activist David Miller and former diplomat Ambassador Rosemary McCartney. Let's go listen to what they say. Welcome to Moving the Needle on Wicked Problems. On today's episode, we will be talking about climate change and its impact at the local, National and international level. To delve into these issues, we are speaking with Rosemary McCartney and David Miller. Rosemary is the past ambassador to the United Nations in Geneva, the Sabia Pearson Distinguished Scholar in International Relations at Trinity College, and the 2020 2021 Foreign and Defense Policy Senior Fellow at Massey College. She is, of course, also with me. A member of the World Refugee and Migration Council. And David Miller, well known to many of us in Canada, is the Director of International Diplomacy for C40 Cities Climate Leadership Group. He was previously the CEO of the World Wildlife Fund of Canada and of course a very popular Mayor of Toronto when I was also very engaged in local issues. Welcome both of you. Thank you for taking the time to speak to us today. David, I'm going to start ask uh, with you with a question about climate change and extreme weather and how it impacts people's daily lives. And we have a real life example from Texas right now. You know, there's extreme weather there. And I know that. Uh, you know, lots of climate change experts say the two are not necessarily related. Extreme weather and climate change are not the same, but there is a causal link. Can you explain to us how extreme weather is connected to climate change and whether we can expect more of these, you know, uh, explosions, as I may call them, uh,
2: that hit people
0: at a daily level?
2: Thanks, uh, Senator, for the question and and thanks for having me on the podcast as well. And uh, hello, Rosemary. Great to to be part of this. I look forward to hearing from both of you. I I think that's a spot on question because the extreme weather we're seeing globally, not just in Texas right now with this freak snowstorm, but uh, going back uh, for at least a decade, storms like Hurricane Sandy and others are very connected to climate change in fact that's exactly what climate scientists have said for at least 30 years will be happening more and frequent extreme weather events and from the perspective of city governments so not just from my own experience but from my current work experience this is a really serious issue um, not just because we need to to find ways to stop climate change because it's going to have huge impact on on people and on nature but a very serious practical issue um you know hurricane sandy for example caused billions for for new york to uh to fix its infrastructure toronto uh in the face of more extreme weather events is having to rebuild its storm sewer infrastructure and one part of that program one part when I was in office, was costing a billion dollars. Toronto at that time took in three billion in tax revenue. So massive expenses. And I think what's happening in Texas shows what what's happened when we're not prepared. There is a debate about whether this snowstorm is caused by climate change or not. We'll know in a few years whether it was. The argument is that the warming of the Arctic uh, uh, has caused this kind of weather. Uh, I don't think it matters whether this specific storm is caused by climate change or not, we're going to see more of these kinds of events. And as we've seen in Texas, Texas was not prepared for a storm of this magnitude. Its uh, electricity system wasn't built with the resilience necessary because of its rather unusual market structure. It relied on very high rates in the short term to lower electricity consumption as its response to disasters. And as we've seen, that's completely inadequate. This is what's going to happen in many places and from a city government's perspective is a huge issue and probably why many city governments are working so hard to mitigate against climate change, because they know they have to do it.
1: And and Rosemary, what is sort of happening, I guess, on the world stage? I mean, you know, every, you know, we think about things in a global perspective, uh, but, you know, Countries are essentially doing what Canada and, and and David just sort of outlined, you know, on a local level in their in their countries. And you know, I've heard stories of of cities having to be completely relocated because of rising sea levels. So, can you sort of take us through what's happening on a global scale around climate change and how it's impacting nations around the world?
3: Sure. And um, thanks so much for having me and Senator um, for the invitation. And hello, David it's good to see you again as well um i think that the easiest thing to say is that it's differential uh, around the world how how who's getting impacted in what uh what ways by how much etc and certainly there's more vulnerable communities as there always are and and somewhat somewhat less vulnerable communities but all of us are being impacted so you know whether you think of canada and these recurring forest fires that are are stacking up, as they are in the northwest United States. And you think of the tundra melting and the infrastructural and human displacement in the Canadian Arctic, or you think about the rising sea levels on on our coasts, and we have more coastline than any country in the world. Um, and then, of course, as you mentioned, Paul, this the Pacific Island states are struggling with rising sea levels that are causing salinization of crops, loss of homes, etc. Africa, you've got droughts that are just recurring um, that are quite, they used to be predictable, but now they're, they're very, they're not. And so when do farmers plant safely, you know, seeds that are, are hard to come by? When, when do we think about irrigation methods? And then as you know, David said, the US is, is not immune um wealthy countries are not immune uh, we think about it more in terms of infrastructural costs uh without question but you know resource rich countries can build dikes and dams and and uh do bylaws on floodplain building etc but it you know we can't hold it all back and therefore you've got massive flooding on the new york coast you've got hurricanes hitting more um with more damage further north, whether it's Halifax or or the eastern seaboard, so when none of us are immune. We can buy insurance, but that only takes us so far. So, you know, when you ask about what's the global picture, it's it's everywhere. But um, the capacity to habituate or to build resilience or to recover
0: is highly differentiated. So, thank thanks, Rosemary. You know, I. I, we all understand that climate doesn't belong to any one country, it, you know, it's everywhere and you and I have worked very closely together on refugee issues and you and I understand the reasons why people flee their countries, oppression, human rights, abuses, corruption, add climate change to the mix. What do you get? Well,
3: um, what a lot of people say is if you think about climate change, it's a force multiplier for all of the underlying vulnerabilities that that exist in any event. And so, you know, you have loss of livelihood, um, not just farming and agriculture, but loss of livelihood across the piece, loss of markets. Um, You've got salinization of farmlands happening all over the world, so agricultural impacts. Um, People are selling their assets to be able to cope with the impact of climate change. And so when you sell the cattle, when you sell the home, or when you rent out your scarce land you know that drawdown of capital that allows some resilience and recovery is gone forever and you know i think one of the things we have to be thoughtful about and and it's not sufficiently yet in the public domain is the issue of climate change and disease transmission whether it's because of more urban density or whether it's because of loss of land and a natural habitat for animals, so you've got animal to human transmission in a way um, we have never um, seen before and certainly COVID-19 is is certainly bringing that into the fore. I think the other thing that uh, perhaps we're becoming more cognizant of is climate-induced conflict. So when you have a massive drought which leads to hunger, irrecoverable hunger situations, then you've got uh, competition for scarce resources leading to conflict. And and so the science is becoming more precise. So people move, absolutely. But there's a conflagration of reasons people move and tipping points why people move. But 60% of the most vulnerable countries in the world are conflict-ridden right now. And, and they're also the ones already most vulnerable to climate change so you put those two together even the UN Security Council I think it's this week or next week is going to start talking about this as a security issue
1: and 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 it's an interesting discussion because you know we've we've talked about how climate change is impacting everyone and and you know cities uh, nations And obviously individuals as well as Rosemary you just pointed out right I mean you know people having to sell their their stuff just because they're impacted by climate change or you know we saw in Texas as well where you know if that's linked to climate change or not we have people that have broken water pipes in their homes so now they have to pay for it or their insurance has to pay for it so it's affecting people but one of the things that that you know particularly in Canada but I'm sure it's in other nations as well including the United States is that this is a particularly difficult political issue to deal with. You know, there seems to be a discourse around it that's either you know for action or against action altogether, or even denial. You know, I, I guess as well. So, David, I, I'm I'm curious what do you th- what do you think about this political discourse that has come around climate change?
2: Uh, there's no question at all, Paul, that the discourse is polarized around climate change. Uh, but from my perspective, it's actually not a difficult political issue, uh, certainly not in Canada uh, and, and in most developed countries. The, the difficulty around climate change action is um, the inequitable impact of climate, and Rosemary has you know, really articulately just spoken to a lot of that. It's true within uh, rich Western countries as well, there's real differential in, uh, impact. But the vast majority of people um, understand the science and demand action. And we saw that in Canada's last federal election where uh, the majority of, vast majority of people voted for parties that had a really robust and coherent climate change plan. I think where there is some political difficulty is in real action. There's a clear public consensus that we have to act. Yes, there's a small group who's fighting a pitch battle, mostly funded by the owners of some parts of uh, fossil fuel industry, some parts. I I don't want to brush them all with with the same brush, but some of them. Um, But moving from a general belief that we have to address this to real action is the political challenge because some of those actions have a differential Negative impact on a particular group, even though they have a beneficial impact for society environmentally and economically. For example, a transition from using polluting fuels to clean fuels. There are lots of studies show there are more jobs in generating power by clean ways than there are in coal. But what happens to a community, let's take a community in Alberta, that has a coal mine and a coal-powered fired power plant, what happens to those people? And I I think sometimes in the debate, we forget to both include them in the conversation, include their needs, and think about very specific remedies. It doesn't help people in that place to say, there is 100,000 new jobs uh, doing green energy in Ontario. What helps people in that place is to say, you know what? We're going to make you the Canadian center of manufacturing wind turbines and use similar skills so that you and your family will continue to have a future for generations. And to me, the um, political challenge has been creating those kinds of solutions. And I I think the good news is that we see lots of solutions happening in cities that meet that sort of green and just criteria. and and there's something to build from, from a a global perspective. But to me, that's the political challenge, and it's one of uh, inclusion, equity, justice, uh, and fairness.
1: And that sort of leads, I guess, If you, I'm just with Rosemary because I think we can build off this. I mean, I think you're absolutely right that that David that you know uh, polling and also you know how people voted in the last election shows that there's a lot of will for action on climate change. I guess the only the only slight caveat to that is in Alberta and Saskatchewan, in particular, in Canada, there was you know uh, suggestion through their votes that that you know they weren't necessarily looking for the same type of action so i'm wondering that and, and and some people have even taken it to the next level to say that this is a national unity issue so i'm wondering and i and you david you mentioned a bunch of good ideas but rosemary what what can be done to sort of bridge that divide so canada isn't divided going forward and and, and rightly or wrongly that we don't come have the the country you know sort of torn apart by this particular issue.
3: well I, I fully agree with David is that you know let's stop debating the science. the science is getting more and more precise. let's debate what are we going to do about it together and and move move past this 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 kind of silly conversation to a really substantive conversation and David, has you know proposed some really good public policy that that we need to think about as we move to and transition with difficulty to a green economy but you know it's not just an internal debate because the reality is is that the markets are also um, making decisions about our resource economy. And so, you know, whether it's um, the Norwegian um, sovereign funds and, and other invest- investors, they're saying we're not going to put money into um, carbon intensive industries anymore. And so it's not just a Canadian government decision, the markets are also speaking. And so, these externalities, these shocks that are coming in from the external, particularly the financial markets, making their choices about where they're going to invest, um, it's now incumbent on us to kind of, you know, figure out how can we be the most competitive marketplace for those investment funds in the transition to the green economy, as opposed to um, battling these rear guard battles where the world has moved on um, in its, and these decisions are being taken outside of Canada.
0: Let's keep talking about uh, collective action at at the global stage and and I'm going to sort of compress a number of uh, questions that I have and ask you actually both of you to both of you to respond to them. So starting off with the Paris Accord, 180 countries joined, wonderful. Um, President Trump pulled out of the agreement, President Biden rejoined the agreement, can you both of you reflect on, you know, what what were the significant um, uh, advances made by the world writ large with the Paris Accord? and what hopes and aspirations do you have now that President Biden has rejoined? And what are some of the challenges that are political in nature? I, I realize the science is out there, but it's the political nitpicking and positioning and that seems to get in the way of collective action so both of you i hope you can you will give us radically different answers because i want to get the richness of the debate here <laughs> who would you like to go first rosemary why don't you go first
3: Ah, uh, david <laughs> um, couple of things i would say i mean i was just when you were uh when you were phrasing the question right i was thinking oh the good old days of 2015 when we were all so young and naive you know <laughs> because of course
2: the the 20- well, we, we may have been naive rosemary but i wasn't <laughs> young i'm, I'm not going to claim that <laughs> relatively speaking but boy it's
3: been a long time since 2015 And the commitments made that massive global consensus in 2015, there was a lot going on in 2015, a global consensus on sustainable development goals, which are also important to this conversation on climate change, and then the Paris Agreement. And, and, you know, there were major, at the time, what was seen as pretty major commitments, there were still compromises between the 2 degrees and the 1.5 degrees. There were lots of give, puts and takes, but there was, significant national commitments made. And what's happened is the science has gotten better. And as you say, uh citizens around the world are observing what's happening in their own backyard as well as further afield. And we know that those commitments were not nearly enough. The acceleration of what's happening in terms of the harmful effects of climate change are becoming more and more evident. So the 2020 um follow-up to the paris agreement was supposed to take place in november and we had a global pandemic that shut the world down um with implications of climate change and its impact on covid which is still being revealed um and so we bought ourselves a year collectively the world so now meeting in glasgow one one believes no next november instead or 12 month delay so it's going to be interesting to see but if you look at china and if you look at Um, Canada, other countries, they've upped their commitments in terms of getting to net zero carbon emissions. And so it's going to be interesting to see what's in the the luggage that goes into COP26 in, in November. But I think we should also be watching the private sector because they're moving so quickly. So I mentioned the financial markets, but look at the auto industry and what it's doing. And it's moving faster than the public than the political um, mm-hmm. machinery and and so I think it's going to be interesting and and it's a healthy foot race to uh, more uh, to a green green economies or more sustainable let's say more sustainable economies it's a it's a it's a it's a good foot race to be in
2: so I I have a slightly different perspective um, the, the Paris was good and important because the national government's actually agreed. And people in the advocacy world all bit their tongues. And said this is great because it was hoped that the fact there was agreement would be a signpost so the private sector and others would be empowered to really deliver on climate. But the truth was a bit sad that even the agreements in Paris weren't good enough and we're at a place today where over the next decade, the world needs roughly to half emissions. So we're in a place today where we need action. And, you know, there's another way to look at um, the these conferences of the parties, the COPs, which are the the mandated process under the UN climate agreement to uh, reach certain signposts, which is that they've been a complete and utter failure, a dismal failure. You know, Paris, we all celebrated agreement that was COP 21. It took 21 years after reaching agreement that climate change was a problem to reach an agreement that everybody knew wasn't good enough. I mean, it's an astonishing indictment of the failure of the international system. Now, like others, I'm optimistic that this year's uh, conference, which was last year's, as Rosemary pointed out, called COP26, but it's actually now 27 years since national governments agreed that this was a dire crisis that we had to act on with urgency. I'm optimistic um, that the national governments are all going to say by 2050 we will be net zero. That's great. But the reality is that we need action today. And I think, um, in fact, I would argue very strongly that that action, for the most part, is going to be driven by our uh, urban areas by our city governments, uh, by businesses that are aligned with that movement, empowered by the fact that national governments have said it's okay. But 2050 is too late. We need to be net zero by then. But what happens over the next five years and the next 10 are really what matters. And that's what we need to do. And that's what in the run up to Glasgow in November this year, that's what people need to be announcing is real action, not just commitments. So
0: David, that's a wonderful lead in to my next question. You talked about the failure of international uh, uh, regimes and you talked about the success of uh, local uh, municipalities. You're the CEO of uh, C40, a group of cities that are committed to climate change take a run at some of the best ideas that local municipalities have implemented that could so easily be transported, replicated, disseminated to cities around the world. So, you know, there's the famous line, uh, you know, while uh, uh, prime ministers and presidents, you know, engage in fruitless debate, cities take up the action and prove that things can be done. So give us some optimism here.
2: Sure. and I, uh, I, I have to give a bit of Preface to that if it's okay Senator but I fully agree. cities are places for action. people elect mayors to act. they don't elect them to talk for 21 years. I mean you, you, you can't I mean you've got to do, you've got to deliver water, you know social services, public housing, public transport, public safety, ambulances. you can't wait 21 years to decide whether you have an ambulance fleet the, the context is as of about 2008 2009, most of the world for the very first time ever, lived in urban areas because of some of the migrations you were uh, two talking about earlier and some other reasons. So the world is predominantly urban. Most of the greenhouse gas emissions are either in urban areas or accounted for by the activities needed to sustain them, like electricity plants, even if they're outside the urban area. And most of those are in the areas of buildings, transportation, uh, how we generate electricity and how we manage our waste. Um, so. What's happened since Paris is that the leading cities of the world have said, we are going to draft plans that address the greenhouse gas emissions uh, within our control and try to influence the ones outside our control in those areas. And as of today, 54 of the C40 cities, and C40 represents about 750 million people. So it's like a really huge country, probably the most significant country in the world collectively. 54 of those cities have plans that peak emissions by 2020 do their fair share of having them by uh 2030 and uh go to net zero by 2050. two countries in the world have those plans. two so there's a reason for optimism because cities are actually getting on with it so to answer your question senator what are some really good examples i'd like to give three if i could a few years ago cities really pushed on electric buses. There were a few, and that was it. And bus manufacturers said, we're decades away. But the mayor said, no, we're gonna procure them. We're gonna put out procurements. And uh, within intercity collaboration, but in which China's really the leader, there are now 66,000 electric buses in service in public transport agencies around the world, led by uh, Shenzhen China, which has gone from zero to 16,000 electric buses, and it's electrified its entire taxi fleet as well. And so we see cities like London, England, uh, electrifying its taxi fleet, and the manufacturer of those iconic black London cabs, uh, about two years ago, opened a new plant just to manufacture electric cabs. So there was a very direct connection with jobs, employment, income, Uh, Those kinds of things we see New York City has got, I think, 12,000 vehicles not in its uh, bus fleet, in its regular fleet of vehicles. And that all came about because of city-to-city ideas. Uh, A a couple more, if I might. Um, Second one is Toronto. The, The biggest sector, and it's not discussed nearly often enough because it's not as interesting as Teslas or solar panels, but the biggest sector for emissions in cities is the built environment buildings. And Toronto has had a program. In fact, uh, Jack Layton was one of the City Councils who pushed it along with some others uh, in the late 80s, early 90s, called the Better Buildings Partnership, which is a partnership between the city government, between building owners of commercial buildings, the gas company to use far less gas in heating and cooling, well, particularly heating, um, office towers. That idea (coughs) I presented at a conference Uh, in around 2007. And the then mayor of Melbourne said, I like that. And he took it to Melbourne and they created their own better buildings partnership. Sydney saw it and said, we like that. And so this idea of this voluntary driven um, partnership with business to lower their costs of business by using less pollution has been driven globally. And it's a really important uh, greenhouse gas reduction tool and again it creates jobs economic opportunity and, and uh, lots of positive uh, spin-off and the third one is one i'm hoping spreads you know in response to the pandemic um, mayors have been thinking about how do we ensure that the recovery from the pandemic is one that helps us to overcome climate change and also address inequities the the buzzwords are green and just recovery and the, the mayor of Lisbon is a fantastic mayor, and he has really pushed this. He's building, he's using European stimulus funds to build public transport. You know, at a time when ridership was de- is down, he's looking to the future, but he has a, a fantastic housing idea. And it's important from an environmental perspective that people live near where they work. If you build cities that people can walk and bicycle around, they're far more environmentally sustainable. They're actually better places to live. They're more economically successful. So what he's done, it's more complicated than this. I'm way oversimplifying. But he's essentially banned short-term rentals like Airbnb and then used those private apartments, the government rents them, and then rents them at a subsidy to low-income working people who work in the city but were having to live outside the city because of affordability of housing. So he's created a whole system of affordable housing in Lisbon by repurposing existing units that were rented to tourists, it's it's a rather brilliant measure, and I think that's one that could catch fire and spread globally.
0: Certainly, could catch fire in Toronto. We'll make. I'm sure you're making sure Mayor Tory knows about this, yeah. but all of us will now do that.
1: Paul? good. Yeah, Rosemary, I was just wondering about you know, as a former ambassador and as a former diplomat, uh, what was your sort of response, I guess, to uh, to you know, sort of David's, I guess, critique about the international um, efforts on climate change, um, and 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 you know, and and I guess also, well, what what is sort of the next steps, I guess, internationally that should be done that you think would be um, uh, necessary to to continue to the momentum that perhaps Paris started, and hopefully the conference in November will continue.
3: Well. I completely agree with David. I mean, when you're dealing with 193 countries, you're always battling the, you know, the race to the lowest common denominator. Um, Paris wasn't the lowest common denominator, but I think um, anyone who understood knew it wasn't enough, but knew that if you could come out of that with a global consensus and get all the countries of the world to agree to work even harder, but maybe not hard enough, and and then what we've seen is actually people are coming back in, in the in the five now five and a half years with better commitments that they didn't make in 2015, but the evidence keeps rolling in. So um is it enough? No, it wasn't enough. Will it be enough next year? Not so sure. So I mean we need to keep trying to forge a global consensus on this. Some countries are better able to mitigate and manage and transition, but w- the other part of this is how do we, with our official development assistance across the world, with the wealthier countries, the OECD countries, et cetera, actually help build more resilience and capacity in the poor countries of the world so they can also... Um, both implement and manage ongoing, ongoing commitments. So, you know there's a lot to be done uh, without question. I just think the evidence is less controversial now. It's just, it's compelling. And I, so I think the world has changed a lot since 2015. Um, and so I'm, I'm the eternal optimist in the multilateral system that the multilateral system has to set a frame, but where the rubber hits the road is in small businesses large businesses municipalities etc they're the that's where i think that's where the real action is right now without question
0: so it's interesting that both of you are optimistic you know david with his optimism about what what can happen how Measures, big and small, can change people's lives at a local level and the action of some, you know, enlightened mayors, hopefully a positive virus spreading around the world. You're optimistic about multilateralism. You've written, Rosemary, that global governance has to shift and adapt to the new reality. Let's talk a bit about the UNHCR protocol for refugees, which at this point does not include, you know, climate change is is not a... a, a UNHCR sanctioned reason to claim refugee status. You and I both also know that any efforts to expand or change or shift the convention will likely not be a positive outcome. Uh, so what, what's left for the many, many displaced people? I mean, let's think just of those parts of the world that are already in conflict, the Rohingya on an island. Located on an island in Bangladesh that that is likely going to sink sometime. Who knows? Is a side protocol something that multilateral uh, uh, ambassadors like you, you know, ambassadors of multilateralism, can conceive and work on?
3: Well, Senator, you're absolutely right. There, there, most would agree that there's a legal gap in the international system that. Is somewhere between voluntary migration, economic migration, social migration, and um, and the Refugee Convention of 1951, which was all about persecution and human rights abuses, et cetera. And so the climate forcibly displaced. And there's a there's a range in that middle of that spectrum that there is a legal gap in protection of those folks who are forcibly displaced due to uh, due to a compelling part of it being climate displacement, because people move for a variety of reasons and and, uh, and and are forcibly displaced for a number of reasons. But what we've been talking about is whether or not we couldn't conceive of a category that was that that we could trial. And with Canadian leadership, it's an opportunity because we have credibility and we've got a societal consensus around. the the importance, the value, the humanity, et cetera, of refugees and migration. Um, And and so what if we ran a pilot that actually looked at some of the elements where climate change, environmental degradation was a compelling inflection point in seeking asylum, even though there might be others, and created the category and tested it out in Canada under our current um, caps, et cetera. Mm -hmm that created a category of climate refugee. And, and, you know, UNHCR and the International Organization for Migration both are working hard on this to try and fill the gap. But they, they are um, they're somewhat at the mercy of member states on this. And, you know, you don't want to open existing um, protocols, etc. But if we could run a pilot and show success and then bring on other um, like-minded countries, like, say, the Nordics, etc., to also pilot this, then we're creating an evidentiary base to go back into the multilateral world with with what could be a framework convention, protocol, etc, that would come out of the, the agreements on the Global Compacts on Migration and Refugees, which were signed only 18, 24 months ago, that created alternative, safe, dignified pathways that offered protection to this class of Migration somewhere between voluntary and somewhere between refugee, but that would um, give them the protection that they need um, from forcible displacement. And we need to get out ahead of this, Senator, because whether you the numbers are are quite frankly all over the map. So we shouldn't talk in terms of this specific number in the next five years or ten years, but we are talking in the tens, if and hundreds of millions. I mean, even if you take the most conservative range or the most aggressive range and the extrapolations which can be um, disputed, we're talking about tens and and tens of millions of people who are going to be forcibly displaced. So what are we going to do about it? And how can we create the pathways through some safe, reasonable, constrained, thoughtful pilots where we actually um, Mm -hmm. are able to provide the international world with the data?
0: That is really a a sensible way of moving forward. And I really wish that such a pilot comes around. I want to close with a question to David around domestic migration. Let's just talk about Canada. Uh, Climate change is everywhere. Do you see, um, uh, you know, more domestic migration in Canada? Places that are uh, beset by extreme weather, uh, or or sea level rising, where we are a country with many coasts. Do you do you see that happening with or without um, the interventions that we talked about? Is it inevitable in a way? That's what I'm asking. Is it inevitable that we will have to all move somewhere to be safer?
2: I I, I think. If we can broaden this slightly senator to think about environmental Mm -hmm. stresses and climate change Mm -hmm. i think there are some very real worries you know the uh small fishing villages in newfoundland for example when i was at wwf we were doing a project to try to help the cod fishery become sustainable and we visited a small village that had been there i think since 16 56 or something and basically everybody there lost their jobs in 1989 literally everybody and there there has been a push now and then to try and essentially shut down all these places and have people come to the cities but people don't want that they value their place it's part of their soul and I worry about that it is true it's also true as uh, the oil industry in Canada is under more and more pressure from international sources and finds it harder and harder to to get capital and as we use less and less oil, you know, those communities are going to be under pressure. Um, and the the impact of climate change uh, on Canada itself in terms of our climate is very region dependent. you'll see some crops moving in Saskatchewan, which will also push people to, to move north very serious problems in the north with permafrost. Um, China coming through the Northwest Passage. Chinese shipping, what impact's that going to have and what's it going to have on those northern communities where people actually depend on the ice? Um, you know, a right to be cold uh, um, kind of um, argument. So I, I think there's some very complicated questions and they are a worry because they just don't get enough thoughtful attention. Um, you know, how can we support fairly remote places that people are actually connected to, and their heritage is connected to? How do we do that in the face of these really significant changing environmental challenges, including the disappearance of local food in the case of the North, which is entirely possible? Um, I don't. I don't have the answer to that as easily as I do to how we mitigate against climate change, which I see quite clearly. But it's a really critical question for this country because that's that's part of our soul and of of who we are. Really,
0: so thank you. Both of you, I, you know, it's been a fascinating conversation, a really important subject, and I'm thinking that, you know, you know, with you as climate activists, as thought leaders uh, and with your colleagues, because there's a whole community, uh, we are not bereft of ideas. Maybe we just require greater political will, whether that political will is local, national or global. Thank you so much for joining us to our listeners. Please continue to listen to us. We will have more fascinating guests in the new future. And I welcome you to write to me about your suggestions about who you'd like to hear from. We will continue to bring moving the needle to you as we examine all the many problems and the many solutions that are available to us in our country
1: and in the globe. Thank you.